Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today has been a woman leading in two heavily male-dominated industries, politics and comedy, and she's transitioned career-wise smoothly from one to the other and then back again, which in her view is straightforward given that she said there's barely a cigarette paper between politics and comedy these days. I'm talking about journalist, stand-up comedian and former UK Labor Party advisor Aisha Hazarika. So, we're going to talk comedy, we're going to talk politics, but before we do any of that, I'm going to take you back to where it all started. You were raised in Scotland by first-generation Indian immigrants, and you've described yourself as a bit of an outsider because of your race and religion at school. Can you talk us through those days? What was it like? One of my very first memories is being four years old and getting ready to go to school and just having this sense of dread, partly because I was like, in my four-year-old brain, I think I was kind of had like an old cynical brain. I was like, oh, here it begins. The rat race begins, basically, <laughs> even at the age of four. But also, I went to school and I was just so different. There was not anybody who looked like me. I think the other kids, and I, and I don't mean this in a bad, I don't think they meant to, I think... I was such a novelty and I was so unusual. I think some of the children were quite frightened of me and nobody wanted to, like, hold my hand. You know, when you were, like, doing your wee games and stuff like that, nobody wanted to, like, touch my hand or even touch my skin. I think they thought I was dirty. There's a word called jobby in Scotland, which means a poo, and people used to call me jobby. And I had a brown uniform as well, which really helped, as you can imagine. That was great, like, seamless. I was just one big jobby. And so I just have those memories. I remember one day, like, I didn't really have that many play dates or things like that. And I do remember one day, though, being with a, a kind of a group, and I think one of the parents took us up to the local golf club, and I heard these two men talking about me, and it was like I wasn't there, or maybe they didn't think I understood English. And they were talking about me going, I just don't know what, I don't know what she is, I don't know if she's a packy, I don't know if she's a... I just, I, so they're my very, very early, early memory. So that is like kind of four years old sort of memory. I then moved to a different school when I was about six, 
And I think that was a lot easier because there just were a few more other kids that looked like me and it was just a bit more welcoming. I think it was a bit more kind of gentle. But yeah, I mean, I do have that memory. And I think a lot of it was just ignorance. I don't think those people were like fundamentally... But I think it was just fear and ignorance because when you are so different and you are so the other and no one's educated you and said, actually, everybody, this is like fine, everybody's normal, that's what happens. And would you talk about it in your family? Not really. So I think one of the things that certainly with my family is, and I think this is true actually of a lot of immigrants of that generation. So when I was growing up, it's like, I was born in, like, late 1975, so it's the early 80s, really, into the 80s. That makes you impossibly young in my book, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a sort of... Because everybody was finding it quite tough, I think nobody really wanted to talk about it because nobody wanted to sort of reveal the fact that they were having a hard time. I think your parents, or certainly my parents, wanted to put a sort of brave face on everything, that everything is fine, we've come to this country to give you a better life, we're all cracking on, let's just focus on the positive stuff. So we wore it all quite lightly. It was not very fashionable. We're in a very different society now. We're in a society where we, like very confessional and we talk about everything and I'm not saying that I think that's a good thing but definitely when I was growing up there there wasn't any of that it was a bit of a sort of stiff upper lip and just sort of crack on if you're having a hard time don't tell anybody and also I think for like me and my wee brother we also didn't want to bother our parents about it because I think we kind of thought well our parents are probably having quite a hard time as well we don't want to make it any worse for them they've sort of come over here for us so we've got to like sort of thrive and seem to be thriving they don't want to know that their kids are like having a tough time or or not getting on and things like that so and I think there's positives and negatives in that I think the positive is that you do build a lot of resilience and sometimes in life actually you do have to just crack on and it's made me very thick-skinned about barriers and discrimination and all that sort of stuff on the downside, it's not that healthy to sort of not talk about these things. And I do think there's probably a generation of the children of immigrants about my age that are still kind of processing who we are and what is our tribe and how do we fit in and all that kind of thing. And in that processing, what was the first moment when you realised, I'm getting treated differently because I'm a girl? So I do remember, so my dad's best friend was a man called Aftab, our Uncle Aftab, and he had these two boys, Omar and Raza, and my, I had a brother called Sharif, and the four of us were, like, inseparable, like, absolutely inseparable. And I was, like, a total tomboy, and I was totally ruling the roost with these three boys and bossing them around, and we'd play cricket in the garden and all that kind of thing. And so I thought I was exactly the same as them, to the point where one Christmas my mum got me, like, a Cindy house, and I was so upset because I wanted all the Star Wars figures that all the boys would get. Like, I basically thought I was a boy. Until one Friday morning, it was like a religious holiday. It was like a Muslim religious holiday. And all the boys with my dad and my Uncle Aftab were going to go to the mosque. And I wasn't going to go with them. And I was like, what? But we've just we've just all been hanging out. Like, surely I'm coming to the mosque with you. And my mum was like, no, 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 Aisha, you don't go because girls don't go. And I was like, what do you mean girls don't go? She's like, girls don't go to the mosque. That's not women stay at home. We, we'll prepare food. And I'm like, I'm not prepared. What? <laughs> and I just could not get my head around it. And I remember my brother like sticking his tongue out at me and thinking this was absolutely sort of hilarious. And I was just like, so that was my first sort of sharp shock of the reality that actually my biology makes me different. And in your adult life, how do you process those things around gender and religion? 
with a lot of wine. <laughs> I'm a moderate Muslim, obviously. <laughs> Leading to any conclusions that can be remembered the next time? Well, look, I think any woman in any walk of life who is trying to sort of surge forward has moments where she feels incredibly frustrated about sometimes it's overt sexism other times it's much more covert and it's much more structural sexism so I've had it at so many twists and turns in my career and I have always been quite an ambitious person like once I sort of got going with my career I didn't want anybody to to hold me back so I've you know had so many different moments I mean when I was at the Labour Party, you know, you said I was this advisor and I so wanted to be a political advisor. It's such an interesting, exciting job. And I was so proud of becoming a sort of senior advisor. And in politics, as you well know, being in the room with the leader is where all the action happens. That is that is really the kind of fulcrum of power. And it's the leader sitting down with her or his advisors, making all the big decisions, having those big strategic conversations, whether it's about the media, whether it's about policy, whether it's about strategy. And my aim in life was to get into that room. And I got into that room eventually and I worked really, really hard to get in there. And I couldn't believe it, it was just full of men. It was full of advisors who all looked the same, sounded the same, all been to the same university, all kind of gone to the same schools, pretty much married the same woman, you know, like all had beards. They were all called Bob, Tom and Simon as well. So I used to joke saying if you ever forgot someone's name in politics in Westminster, go for Bob, Tom or Simon and you would be like... <laughs> and I remember sort of getting into that room and I was, even though I had like felt like I'd broken this, whether you call the ceiling or getting through the door and suddenly I felt like I was like this little girl again, having to start right from the beginning, feeling like my voice wasn't really being heard. When you're like the sole she-wolf, the lone she-wolf in a room full of men with a very, very sort of gendered view of the world. I mean, very, very nice men. You know, I've gone out with quite a lot of them. (laughs) But, you know, just a particular view. I remember thinking, this can't be... I can't believe this is sort of the way modern politics is. And I battled many a a kind of discussion about what we should do. And also, when I worked with my boss, Harriet Harman, we were working on, on gender issues, and we would get pushback all the time. And I remember just feeling... It wasn't that I felt like kind of upset about it. It was more I was surprised because I would expect pushback from the right wing forces of conservatism. Like the Daily Mail was never going to like what we were proposing. Or I imagine some of the old bufties from the Conservative Party, you know, the golf club sort of chaps. The people I didn't expect to be pushing back and telling us that this was all kind of political correctness gone mad and we needed to just calm it down and be reined in like we were horses or like mares or something, were actually so-called progressive men in the Labour Party. That's what I found quite sort of shocking. And the journey to get there, I do want to just uh, take you back again to those first few years because I was intrigued to read that when you were a young girl around your family table, you would get drilled on the names of politicians. I remember sitting around the dinner table and having to do times tables questions, you know, Dad asking us what X times Y was going to be. Is that because it was a political family? So it's really interesting. Our family wasn't actually very political. Certainly it wasn't like tribally political. And again, 
I think a lot of immigrant families at that point just felt that like they didn't have the right to express a political view. Like their job in life is to keep their head down, not cause any controversy and just work hard and get on. So politics, I think, for a lot of immigrants at that point just felt like it was just really not for them. But they did recognise that politics obviously was very important. We used to have these very long car journeys. We used to have all our holidays in the north of Scotland, a place called Aviemore. Now, if you didn't think there were any black and brown people in Glasgow, there certainly were not any <laughs> black and brown. We were like total freak show, basically, like driving. And my poor parents, they tried so hard to assimilate us. Like we used to do mad things. Like on a Saturday morning, I'd go and, you know, learn how to read the Quran. And then my mum would drive me to Scottish country dancing lessons. <laughs> And having done the both, Julie, I'm not sure which one's more subversive. I think Scottish country dancing is more violent than than Islam, to be quite honest with you. So we'd like have these long car journeys, and we would we would just have these horrendous like interrogations where my mum and dad would just test us on who was in the cabinet, and who it was just like. However, it was very helpful for me because it did engender a sense that politics was very important. And probably the reveal as to what I would end up doing when I grew up was the fact that my favourite TV show growing up was Spitting Image. Ah, yes. And actually, we've we've discussed this before because it was just this brilliant satirical show. And actually, I think that my family... And definitely, I felt this myself. So we learned a lot about politics from watching Spitting Image because it was so funny, but also it was so sharp and often with good satire. It's funny, but it has a very sharp sting of truth about it. And that brings us to the comedy career, (laughs) comedy and politics all mixed in. You studied law and you went and worked for some government departments as a civil servant, but you decided to take a course in stand-up comedy and you say you did that because it was going to help you deal with stress at work. Now, most (laughs) people would think one of the most stressful things in the world would be getting on stage and trying to make other people laugh. What was it about comedy that attracted you? So I think I was having a bit of a quarter-life crisis. <laughs> quarter-life. It's <laughs> <laughs> obviously assuming I'm going to live to 100, which I'm clearly not. So I was working as a press officer at the Department of Trade and Industry, and it was a great job, and it was really busy and things. But I suddenly just had this moment thinking, I can just see the next, like, sort of 30 years of my life just going gonna, gonna to whiz by like that. And all I'm going to do is this, and I'm going to be in this cycle where I kind of go to work, have quite a stressful job, go to the pub at night, moan about work, rinse, repeat. That is going to be my life. And I thought, I've got to do more with my life. And quite a lot of my friends, both that I worked with, but, you know, since you know, since I was at school, actually. In fact, you mentioned the, the bullying. The one thing I clocked quite early, that the way to get people to not bully me was to make them laugh. So that humour can be quite a powerful self-defence mechanism. So quite a lot of people had always said, oh, you're very, really funny, you should try doing stand-up. But it felt so literally incredible. Uh, like it's saying, hey, you should be an astronaut, just go off and do that. But I had this secret little thing in my head thinking, oh God, actually, I would love to give that a go. And then there was a course advertised in how to be a stand-up and they'd never done a course like this before. It was an evening course. So my friend at work saw it and she was like, you've got to do this. So I went along and did that, started gigging on the open mic circuit and I just got a real buzz about it. I got a real sort of taste for it. I think it was the fact that it was terrifying. It still is terrifying. You know, it's probably the hardest thing that you can do. But what what I liked about it is that when I was doing it, I was so all consumed by it. I had no scope or space to worry about like my day job. So it provided me, I think, that kind of form of stress relief, which was 
it just occupied every fibre of my being, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, everything. So even though I was ended up in this mad world where by day I was in my little skirt, suit and heels, (laughs) (laughs) being the press secretary to the then Secretary of State for Trade and Industry and I'd be rushing around with her doing press briefings and all that kind of thing. Then I'd finish work and I'd rush to the loo, change into my really scruffy jeans and T-shirt and I would rush out to some tube station on the edge of London jump in a car with full of comedians and we would go up to sort of Manchester, Newcastle, down to Cornwall. We'd go all over the country doing these gigs in the evening. And I did that maybe like three times a week. And I'd sort of get back home at about three, four in the morning and come into work the next day. And I was absolutely exhausted. But even though I was physically tired, I felt mentally quite energised because I had been engaging my brain in something completely different, which obviously I loved and it stimulated me in a very good way. But yeah, so I had this weird dual life. And how gendered was it? Lots of women in comedy have spoken about the sexist environment, the owners of the club or the venue who have been harassing. Lots of the Me Too moments have come out of comedy. How did you find it? So I found that there was a lot of structural sexism in the sense that, and it still is, it's changing and there's a lot of brilliant women on the circuit now and it's definitely not unusual to see female comedians. But there is still something quite counterintuitive, I think, in our society about women and power, particularly power with communication. And humour is the ultimate power in communication. Right back from even when you think about just going for a trip to the pub, Normally, it is a man holding court with people around. It's very rarely, even in an informal setting, a woman doing it. And so people were really nervous about female comedians, like bookers were nervous. Even the more progressive bookers who wanted to book a woman were terrified. I remember like ringing up for gigs and I'd be like, oh, hi, I'd love to come and play your club. And they were like, oh, we'd really love to have you. But we had one of you like three weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) One of you meaning a woman. Yeah, exactly. We had a set of ovaries on stage. like you know. And then another time there was obviously a massive mistake with the booking because me and another woman were booked on the same bill. And we turned up and like the kind of owner of the club was going absolutely nuts. And he was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Are you going to fight? Are you going to have the same like material? Are you going to start menstruating? Menstruating at the same st- I was like, yeah, there's gonna just get like it's gonna be like rivers of blood on the stage, like it's gonna be this is what's exactly gonna happen. So that has changed. But definitely there also was like a bit of like, oh yeah, there was a lot of sleaze going on, you know, like in anything. And particularly as well, because so much of kind of sexual harassment is about power. And if you really, really wanted a gig, you had to like kind of really befriend and be nice to the, you know, to the owner of the club or the bookers. But they were very, very, the bookers were very powerful. And I remember this horrible man. Actually, his comedy club wasn't even that good, but it was just like, you know, we were desperate. You you really just wanted, it's like flying hours. You just wanted as much stage time as possible. And I remember he rang me up and he was like, Aisha, I've got a very special gig for you. I was like, oh my God, amazing. Like, am I going to get a full 10 minutes? Because you you work from five minutes to seven minutes to 10 minutes. I was like, oh my God, am I going to get my 10 minutes? And he's like, what well, maybe, but this gig is more, um, I want you to, it's like more of a hostessing job. I've got a few mates, like we're going to go to the races and we want to take a few girls with us and all. And it was just like, mm. it was almost like come and do this hostessing and then I'll give you a, a gig. So I did not do the hostessing and I did not get the gig. Oh dear. 
Uh, somehow I'm not surprised, but do you think it's a little bit better? Yes, I think it's much better now. I think, I mean, it's not like completely transformed. You look at things like panel shows, comedy panel shows on broadcasts, and there's again, there's one token woman because there it's like Highlander, there can be only one, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it is getting better. And I think, you know, that there are so many fantastic female comedians. And there's a show on Amazon called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel that everybody like loves. And I just say to anybody listening to this, if you if you love that show go out and see female comedians that's another thing if you want to support female comedians buy tickets to go and see them that is the best thing you can do and you will not be disappointed you've said about that comedy phase that comedians are masochistic putting yourself out there exposing yourself to ridicule why do it you know I mean you must have had people shout obscenities from the audience you must have had times the audience didn't laugh didn't get the joke all right Julia (laughs) I mean you know are you reading my reviews (laughs) let me restructure that you know one in a thousand yeah I mean obviously (laughs) well it's really fun I think for a lot of comedians sometimes you do think of comedy as like a bit of a cry for help it's kind of cheaper than therapy and a lot of comedians do joke that, look, everybody has mental health issues, but I think with with comedians, there is an interesting duality, that, very similar to politicians, actually. There's, there's a lot of similarities, uh, the heckling. I think sometimes comedians, we have an innate desire and need to perform and show off. And we are clearly seeking some sort of validation for the thing that we believe is the most precious skill we have, which is the ability to make people laugh. So we're very, very clear about that. It's a very powerful force that makes, seeks it out for us. But on the other hand, we're incredibly, incredibly insecure. We have very, very thin skins. We take criticism really, really badly. You know, we kind of question ourselves a lot of the time. So I think, and I think that's actually true of, of politicians as well, actually. Lots of politicians that I've worked for. So it's probably interesting that I've ended up sort of with a foot in, in both camps. But yeah, I think there is, I mean, people always used to say to me, oh, when you were like on the road gigging as a circuit comedian, it must have been such a riot in the car with all the stand-up comedians. It was like, no, it was like a sort of group feel my pain and <laughs> everybody, also comedians are really jealous and really bitter about anyone else's success. So you'd, I'd normally be squished in the back with like four men and they'll be going, have you seen like Billy's got a 20, 20 minute slot at the comedy store? I can't believe it. I hate him. I hate my life. Why not me? So there was a lot of that going on, basically. <laughs> that doesn't sound too much fun. This intersection of comedy and politics, you've talked about weirdness, that comedians are a bit weird, but you've also said that politicians are weird because politicians are so scared of appearing weird that they become weird. <laughs> Now, I'm very self-conscious at this point that you're going to wander out of this studio and to the next person you see yourself was with Julia Gillard. She's really weird. Uh, talk to us about weirdness and politics. I think something happens to a politician. I think they, you can take a politician and they can be a completely normal functioning human being and suddenly you sort of put them in the political spotlight and something something happens to them. I think something does happen to them. They sort of, they don't mean to do it, but they suddenly become like the incarnation of the thick of it without, <laughs> like, like, with 
without meaning to be. I mean, I would watch the thick of it, laughing, but slightly with my, just like, ah, because so much of it was was true. You know, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story, which I have, I've told the story quite a few times, but this sums up. When I worked for Ed Miliband, who was absolutely lovely, and before Ed Miliband became leader of the Labour Party, he was, like, considered, like, the hot Miliband brother. Like, loads of... <laughs> I know, I know. This is what politics does to you. And like all these young girls and boys in the Labour movement were like, oh my God, Ed's so hot. He's like amazing. Like forget David. Like he's the one that everybody just like loves. And he was like quite cool. He would like turn up at these speeches. He'd be a bit of a rock star. Then he becomes leader of the Labour Party. And the poor man just like morphs into sort of weirdness overnight. I used to help him prepare for Prime Minister's questions which is quite stressful because David Cameron was a formidable opponent and he would always take the rip out of Ed Miliband. And one Wednesday morning, we had to prepare six questions on the badger cull, which, believe it or not, was like a really big raging rural issue. And Ed was getting really, really stressed out and he was like ringing up the shadow cabinet and he kept running to the loo. He kept running his hands through his hair, which was very, very dark, the big stripe of white down the centre of it. And just before we we're about to go into the House of Commons chamber, he turns around to me and he's like, Aisha, I've got to ask you a question. And I'm like, oh my God, like, what is it? Is it something about our deficit reduction plans? And he's like, no, honestly, it's far more important than that. Look at me and just answer me this question. Am I a badger? <laughs> And the answer you gave was... You are a human man who's trying to be Prime Minister. Get the F into that chamber right now. It's like, what are you doing? You're not a... You're a man. You're a human. You're not a badger. He's like, honestly, are you absolutely sure? He was convinced he was like a... He was convinced David Cameron, because of his hair, was going to call him a badger. Badger. There is something so wonderfully British about this story. I am now going to claim for Australian politics that we're nowhere near as eccentric as that and we don't have badger coals, so we don't have to worry about people calling us badgers. The badger coal, honestly, it's been one of the longest-running disputes in British political history. When I started as a junior press officer in 1997, it's honestly, this badger thing is a—it's like the big, big unspoken... Forget Brexit, badgers are bigger than Brexit. (laughs) Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What brings the weirdness to politics, though? That's a very weird moment. But is it just the pressure? People under that much scrutiny start getting incredibly locked and defensive about how to avoid negative criticism? I think that's a lot of it because I think... And I've, I've joked about Ed, but he is a he's a great guy and he was a, you know, very, very smart, intelligent, principled politician. But I defy anybody just to get through that level of relentless scrutiny day in, day out. Just people slagging off every single thing about you, your appearance, you know, your how you sound, how you eat food, you know, everything you do, you cannot put a foot right. And I think that does affect you. I think... 
it makes you self-edit. It does make you paranoid. I think it would make anybody weird. And I think that it is something that I think a lot of people don't appreciate that when somebody becomes particularly leader of a political party and leader of the opposition as well in this country, you know, we, we are famed for having a very robust, free, mischievous, sometimes very brutal press. And the way our press is structured, yes, the press will go after, you know, they try to have an equal opportunity approach to everybody. But there is a truth that, you know, if you're one of the minority parties, particularly the Labour Party in opposition, the press is absolutely brutal and ruthless and they take no prisoners. And you have to have quite a robust mental health constitution to, to handle that. It is it is difficult, not just for the principal, but also for their family. You know, their partner, it's really hard for them, you know, their family. It's, it is tough. It's easy to scoff from the sidelines and it's easy to poke fun. And I say this as somebody is now a journalist, I'm a diarist, obviously I'm a satirist as a comedian, and I love ripping the fun out of people. But having been on the other side and I was very protective over the people I worked for, Gordon Brown, Harriet Harman, Ed Miliband, you know, other people I worked for as well. It is tough and you really do feel for people and you think, God, it's much easier to cart from the sidelines, but you try even spending, you know, a day in that person's life and you might feel slightly differently. And doing the comparison, so Gordon Brown, obviously Prime Minister, Ed Miliband was leader of the opposition, Harriet Harman was deputy leader and served as an acting leader for a period. Comparing your work with them, how big a role does gender play in these pressures that we're talking about? Was it different for Harriet than it was, say, for Gordon or Ed? Yeah, I would say gender played a huge, huge role. So, I mean, Ed Miliband and, and Gordon Brown got a really, really hard time. No question about it. But Harriet got a hard time for the same reasons as they did, but had an additional level of abuse because she was a woman. So surname Harriet Harman, because she was a feminist, Harriet Harperson. There was just so many caricatures of her always just being like this kind of like harpy or a sort of shrew you know she was always like shrill you know whereas Gordon Brown was like the clunking fist you know she was like screechy or you know all of that kind of thing and because we were also working on gender issues and she was in my view this country's sort of leading feminist and you know has been for quite some time and has done more I think single-handedly to to help women in this country particularly through legislative changes than almost anyone else I can think of but, you know, she was really singled out for that. And she was also attacked because she was not apologetic about being a feminist. She wasn't like a, oh, God, I'm really, really sorry, but I'm going to like, is it OK if we ask for a few more rights? We won't ask for too many rights, but just a couple, you know, just, a, you know, she was like, no, we demand these, like, give them to us. It's our right to have these rights. And she was also very much like, you shouldn't be the nice girl as the feminist, politely asking. You should be like kicking down the door and you should be fighting with people. But Harry had this phrase, a row is as good as a rest. <laughs> I love that. She loved a row. Like Harry could have a row in an empty room. She loved a row, right? <laughs> and so, but, but she got a really, really hard time in the press from that. But also she got a lot of briefing against her from male colleagues within the Labour Party, particularly over how, in commas, strident she was. I mean, we had a, a, an incident once where we were going to America for a visit to Washington and we were making plans to meet Hillary Clinton. Because why wouldn't? I mean, Harriet was essentially the equivalent of the deputy prime minister, like the most senior woman in British politics, meeting Hillary Clinton. 
and we're you know trying to make contact with the office and we're trying to set it all up and all the plans are in place and just before we're due to leave a very senior male advisor comes to speak to me and says um what, what do you think you're doing I was like, I'm setting up a meeting with Hillary Clinton. He's like, no, you're not. And I was like, why? And he's like, he was like, I don't know if you understand how politics works, but Hillary Clinton is one of the most important people in American politics. Her time is really precious. She's only going to give up one slot to see one British politician within a certain time frame. And if you think we're wasting that slot on like you and Harriet, you've got another thing coming. She needs that slot for a proper politician, i.e. like a man. And the idea we're going to waste that slot talking about gender issues. And he was basically like, if you go ahead with this visit, there there will be serious consequences to to pay. And we were explicitly told to back off. I mean, it ended up fine because we met Nancy Pelosi instead, who was like such a laugh and amazing. (gasps) I mean, we were just, she was so, but it was like, that's the kind of thing we would encounter on a sort of day-to-day basis. That's one form of pushback. But you've also talked about pushback when you were working for Harriet and there was the Women and Equality Unit in government. You're working on the Equality Bill and you've said that that unit, that Equality Unit, was seen as, and I quote, an absolute pain in the arse, annoying women whinging on about different things. And then when people would pick up the phone to you and you would explain, I'm ringing from the Women and Equality Unit, they would tell you to, quote, unquote, F off. <laughs> Why was it as bad as that? I mean, when was this? Is it different now? Why was it as bad as that in a progressive political party? So this was around about like 2007 to about 2010. This was this period of time. I would hope things have got better, but I, I actually don't know if they have. Julia, I think the problem was is that the gatekeepers in politics, even though things are getting better still tend to be men, the absolute levers of power. And in politics, there is the front of house, and there's many, many women who are front of house. But as we all know, the power behind the throne, those background figures, are often where the the real levers are. And they were all men. And wasting political capital on gender issues was just, for them, just seen as an absolute waste of time. I think they thought that there was a number of things that Labour had already done for women. So we had got a lot of women into Parliament in 1997 because of all women shortlists. We had introduced a better package for maternity and paternity rights and flexible working. And we had done some important work on some legislation around sort of domestic violence and things like that. So I think for a lot of those people, they were like, tick, tick, tick. Look, we've got a really good record on women. And at this point, they were like, that's all done. Let's put that in a box. That's done. We've got to concentrate on really, really important things, which is like business, which is like infrastructure, which is stuff which is seen in political terms as quite a masculine agenda. You know, infrastructure is always seen as nuclear and nobody would think of nurseries as being part of infrastructure but it is believe it or not you know it's really really important they were just I think astounded at how brazen we were because we did have demands we wanted to do things that were quite bold like for example on transparency about the gender pay gap which has just recently come into law and it has really set the cat amongst the pigeons because it is shining a light on big organisations from universities through political parties to media companies to business to to everybody, what they're paying their men and what they're paying their women. And a lot of these largely male advisors was like, that would be mental, that would be absurd 
to do that because if you do that women are going to get really angry and kick up a fuss and we're like yeah like that's the whole point of it genius kind of thing and so we ended up just having to have very 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 quite aggressive sort of run-ins with people we had to really kick off to get things done I'll tell you what's really interesting so we were absolutely like we were just the bane of everyone's life, pain in the arse. You know, whenever they saw us, people were trying to roll their eyes and we, we always needed handled and all this kind of thing. And that Equality Act was the last thing that the last Labour government ever got on the statute book back in 2010. So when we were fighting to get it on the statute books, it was an embarrassment. We were an embarrassment. We were bringing shame on the, the Labour Party for being so difficult and anti-business and this, that, the next thing. Now it is cited as one of the greatest achievements of the last Labour government by a lot of the same people who like, you know, I've still got the scars on my back. So I hope that that does mean that attitudes have changed. And I do hope that if we do ever win power again, that the future special advisors, my successors very much down the track, won't hopefully face the same battles that I did with working for Harriet. So more women in politics, but still not enough women in the back rooms, the behind the scenes levers of power. I want to talk to you about the rituals of power, though. You've talked about helping Ed Miliband prepare for Question Time, and you've actually written a book about that, which is called Punch and Judy Politics. And for anybody who's seen a Punch and Judy show, at least a traditional one, Judy doesn't tend to come off very well. (laughs) Even that, the traditions of politics, the question times, the red hot goes in here in the House of Commons, in Australia, in the House of Representatives, are they discriminatory against women? Can women hold their own in those? So I went on quite a journey on this. So I actually think that the Commons is not as sexist as people think. I think it's more what type of personality you are. I think the structures of power are more sexist than the actual chamber. I think the chamber comes down to what kind of character you have. Are you a noisy, rowdy person? Do you like being at the centre of all this noise, almost like on a stage? And do you like the art of combat? Do you love the art of the debate? Are you there with your quick one-liner and your rapier wit? Now, a lot of people don't like that, but it's not just women that don't like that. A lot of men don't like that. Some people don't like confrontation. Some people don't like that style of politics. When I interviewed people for my book, I was actually quite surprised because this question came up a lot. Like when when I was doing my promoting the book and people would say, oh, PMQs is really sexist. Women hate it. And I'd have to say to people, actually, so many of the people we interviewed for the book, women, said that they loved PMQs. And in fact, they were the worst offenders (laughs) in terms of the noise. And in fact, quite a few women said they had been told off like more than anyone else by the Speaker of the House, John Berkel, for making, you know, an absolute racket from the back benches. One great female politician, Angela Eagle, and she had actually has stood in for Jeremy Corbyn once or twice doing PMQs herself. She's very, very witty. She said that for her, she doesn't like this, oh, if you're a woman, you should just keep your mouth shut. It's a big stereotype. She said that like it was like going to watch a football match. It was like being in the terraces and you want your team to win. You want your boss, the leader of your party, is your team and you want 
she or he, largely he in the case of the Labour Party, you want him to, to win. So you become like a participant and the more noise you make, you feel like you're helping him. So before you know it, like you're acting like a hooligan from like the from the back benches. But we spoke to men as well who said that they hated it. So I think it comes down to the the type of person that you are. It's a bit like a sort of stand-up, you know, it's a bit of a gender stereotype. I mean, back when I first started, I'd have so many people saying, well, women just, women don't like it. Women don't like getting up on the stage and having everyone looking at them and, and making them laugh. I think it depends on what, what character you are. But for me growing up, because I grew up under Thatcher, I mean, I am no fan of Thatcher at all, but the one thing I think that women of my generation who worked in politics, because we had a woman reigning over this country and she was such a dogmatic she was not a shrinking wallflower we did grow up thinking it's not weird to have a woman doing that job it's not weird to see a woman in the house of commons surrounded by these braying men absolutely socking it to them so i do think that it's not so much of a gendered thing as people think now there's a bigger argument about the way the house of commons works there are absurd voting patterns, why they have not come up with a system where you can do proxy voting or even vote electronically or make the hours a bit more family friendly. They've tried to move them. That's a, that, that is a legitimate argument to be had. But I think, you know, at one point in Scotland, which is where I'm from, at one point there were three women leaders in Scotland of the Conservatives, obviously SNP, Nicola Sturgeon and the Labour Party, Kezia Dugdale. And people should go back and look at some of those exchanges because they were not ladylike and they were not meek and modest and mild. They were like really like rowdy. And there's a word in Scotland for um, if, if you're having a big, you know, fight, it's a stushy. And it was basically like first minister stushy every like every time the three of them got together. Now, here in the UK, there's been Margaret Thatcher, there's been Theresa May on the Conservative side of politics, both serving as Prime Ministers. When will a woman lead the Labour Party here in the UK? I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. The Labour Party finds itself in such a uniquely difficult time. I mean, we've just lost an election, not just badly, but we lost, we had our one of the most historic defeats in living memory. And the Labour Party in the United Kingdom is a very unhappy, fragmented, angry, raw entity at the moment. The party has really torn itself apart on lines of ideology in terms of a very hard left culture taking over the party. With that has come very unpleasant attitudes on anti-Semitism, but also very misogynistic attitudes as well in terms of how women are treated when they voice their political concerns, when they stand for elections and things like that. So so there's just so much going on with the Labour Party at the moment. There's been a big ideological battle for the soul of the Labour Party. The Labour Party just feels like it's got such a long way. The Labour Party loves women, right? Make no mistake about it. We are the party that brought in all women shortlist. We're very proud of that thing. But we love women in their place. We're also very aligned to the trade union movement, which is a hugely important part of the Labour family. That is deeply patriarchal as well. The big union barons, there are not many union baronesses, there are union barons. The left is very masculine. And the left is happy to have women along, but there's gender segregation in left politics. 
Men do strategy, they do policy, they do big P politics, they do the big top level difficult media stuff. Women do logistics, we do events, we do stakeholder management, we make sure our men are at the right places at the right time and we're very, very supportive but that is sort of our place and it does feel we've got a long way to go. You'll be happy to hear that in Australia the trade union leaders are women. Each podcast we conclude with a series of more standard style questions and firstly I ask my guests to comment on a fact. So here's a fact for you. According to an analysis by the Financial Times in January this year, just 35% of special advisors, SPADs as they're known, working across government are women, and only 21% of SPADs in the top two salary bands are female. Your reaction? I'm surprised it's that high. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that it's so important to get more women in as advisors and experts behind the scenes because I think, you know, there's just a whole lived experience that we are missing in politics as well as the question of, of fairness. But also, it's very rare to see very senior female advisors who have children. You often see a senior female advisor such as myself who was not married or single and was like married to the job, no children. Very, very unusual to see a mother with, with young children. Plenty of men with young children as advisors, not many women. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? I think once I had a, I had a job in the music industry and it was great fun. It was really, really good fun. I worked for the, a really top guy at EMI, former big record giant, a British record label. It was great fun, but my God, like, it was so sexist. No one even batted an eyelid. And I remember once we went to this party and we got invited. It was like a launch party for an album. And we got invited along, like some of us women. And we were like, oh, this is great. We're going along to... And it was at a strip club. And it was just like, we were just there. And there's just loads of, like, boobies, like, all around us. And we were just like, this is just, like mad but we all just had to sort of be like oh yeah thanks so much for like in- inviting us out on this night out to see loads of women <laughs> like g-strings shaking their boobs around us this is this is really kind of you and the, also the, the worst thing was the men that invited us were like you must be so excited like this is like a great night out for you and we were like oh my god this is just unbelievable if you had all of the power in the world for a day what's the one thing you would change for women I'm going to change two things. I'm going to change. I'm going to say just giving women uh, proper childcare and and care for their elderly relatives. That's number one. Second thing is having some magic thing which allowed there to be a critical mass of women in senior meetings and for those women's voices to be heard. That'd be a pretty good thing to change. Virginia Woolf says... Haven't we bred them, boys, and fed and kept them in comfort since the beginning of time so that they may be clever, even if they're nothing else? Aisha says. I completely agree. Complicit sounds too harsh, but, you know, mothers love stroke ruin their boys. They want the best for them. And we all have a thing where, you know, from a very, very young age... I mean, I hope, I, re- I do think this is, cha- this is changing... But we do have a thing about how little boys are told they can be anything they want and that this that is their sort of destiny and from quite particularly in very well bred young boys are hardwired to from a very early age think you are being groomed to be great 
And that's why you don't need to bother learning how to clean your clothes or unstack the dishwasher or bother yourself with any of these fripperies in life because we want your big brain to stay pristine for the big you know government decisions you're going to make or for curing cancer or something like that whereas like young girls are given little toys about how to make plastic fried eggs from like a young age and, and things like that. And I went to this all girls school where like, I remember on our sort of graduation thing, our head teacher was like, you know, because we went to girls school and there was a boys school near us and it was like, you know, girls, it was like the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And she was like, girls, if you, you know, what we want more than anything is that you will make excellent wives for the boys at the local school so you can support them through hopefully a shared endeavor that you will feel some reflected glory it was like oh my god no (laughs) no indeed and thank you for being a woman who's got out there in so many ways comedy politics the media all of it to change some minds about gender equality that's been a delight thank you very much thank you You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.